Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Michael Gutman, OBE, founder and CEO of Assembly Funds Management. Many people will recognize Michael's name as a director of Westfield and a COO of Westfield, working with Frank Lowy and the family for 25 years. We talked to Michael about his move into funds management four years ago and the creation of the Assembly Funds Management business in the property space with high-profile investors in the Lowy family and other high-net-wealth families, it appears that he's gotten considerable traction in this market. Please remember to send your feedback to me. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and note that this is not specific personal advice in any shape and people are always encouraged to make their own inquiries and seek advice. Enjoy the episode. Michael, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you. Thank you, David. Perhaps you could kick off and give our listeners a little introduction to who you are and your background, please. Okay, sure, sure. Um, Well, look, currently I'm the CEO and founder of Assembly Funds Management, uh, which is a boutique uh, real estate uh, investment platform. Uh, It was founded in 2019 um, after the uh, conclusion of the sale of Westfield to Unibar Adamco in 2018, the year before. Uh, It's based in Sydney and it focuses on um, an entrepreneurial approach to real estate investing, targeting sort of mid to high teen uh, gross returns. And your background prior to that, Michael, what, what, what have so, you done and where have you come from? I, I did a little bit of snooping on the internet and I think you might have uh, been an architect originally. Okay, interesting. Yes. Well, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I did. I, st- I studied architecture originally um, and uh, I do very much enjoy architecture. And I think, you know, back in the day, I remember... Um, my kids telling me about a valedictory speech that Steve Jobs made. Um, yes, yeah, I've seen some, it. And he talked about, um, you know, looking backwards how his life was sort of, you know, put together all the various bits and pieces that he'd done. Even when he studied Japanese calligraphy, that actually formed his, uh, you know, fonts that he used for, mm-hmm. for Apple and so on. So, um, yeah, done a lot of things um, and a lot of, particularly a lot of history and uh, experience in real estate and, uh, and, and investing and buildings or what have you. But um, my architecture was sort of the, the lead into it. Um, I mean, I've worked at some very large blue chip um, real estate firms. My first, you know, key role was at Mervac in the, in the 80s. Um, that was followed by Lindley's and then ultimately my role in Westfield for 25 years, um, which began in Australia and then went global. And I think my background in architecture was very much, um, you know, a way into this world. Um, some people come in via, a, you know, a finance role or an engineering role or what have you. Um, I came in from the product side. So I've always really enjoyed the product and, and the way that really in the end of real estate um, is a means to an end in terms of obviously it has a function and, and what it functionally does is housing people or housing workers or shopping or commerce or what have you. But then learning how that actually then feeds the investment side and how to actually generate financial returns from the physical product. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and obviously the, the architecture is very important, but then there are so many other things as well. 
Did, do you ever find yourself conflicted at the moment and, and in your more commercial property mm. sense where you look at sort of form and architecture and think, no, it really should be this way, but the financial case study supports it being a different way? Well, I, yeah, I, I sort of made a decision early that I wasn't going to be the world's greatest architect and, uh, and I think, uh, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to um, yeah, basically um, understand the tensions that are out there between, you know, the architects, a lot of the architects actually think they're at the centre of the, the whole, you know, product creation exercise, but the reality is there are other forces at play. So it's always a balance and I think in the end, uh, you know, there are many forces at play depending on what the, the actual... Uh, the building or the product is. I can hear my father echoing in the back of my head the golden rule. He who has it, the gold maker, the rule. <laughs> he probably needs to update. Yeah. They who have it, they'll get their, yeah. their, their syntax wrong. Yeah. Uh, how did you come to work for Westfield? So, so you know, from, from the architecture and having made the decision, I worked with some great architectural firms. I worked with Harry Seidler. Um, I worked with Edwards. I worked on, you know, some great of the office buildings around the city. Um, in fact, the MLC centre around the corner from here was one of the projects and um, learnt a lot through, um, you know, for example, I think I might have told this story once before, but um, just really about understanding how God is in the detail um, on the MLC centre that was built, you know, decades ago, um, you know, when they actually had to deliver the concrete to um, to build the building. It was actually um, had to come off, you know, Pitt and Castlereagh Street um, and the logistics and what have you, they actually built a whole layout and a simulation of this of some park out west um, for the trucks to come up, drop off, built cones and ramps and all of these things to work out because the concrete trucks had to come down, deliver, then be taken up the building to build the tower. Um, so after having done all of that, the first concrete truck arrives, has its concrete, drives up King Street, makes a left turn down into the basement, drops the concrete, continues out, and it's on its way out to come up on Castle Ray Street um, and bang, God is in the detail when a concrete truck's delivered its concrete, it's it's about six or 800 metres taller. So oh, it hit oh, the it concrete couldn't and couldn't get out. So, yeah, God is in the detail. Wow. <laughs> That's a lesson to learn. <laughs> a lesson to learn. But, no, so, I mean, architecturally I migrated across. I started my property career at, at uh, Mervac um, after I finished architecture in the 80s. I worked with some iconic people actually right through my career. I mean, guys like Henry Pollack and Bob Hamilton who were the founders of Mervac I really went in there um, to learn the development business and I spent five wonderful years in there in really formative days working with um, with those guys, you know, at the beginning of the journey in, in Mervac, which was very, very exciting. And that was in the um, residential and hotel world. Um, I I worked for a number of years at Lendlease um, in the uh, retail shopping centre world um, and other commercial buildings with people like John Morshell and David Higgins uh, in some of the, the most glory days of, of Lendlease. Um, and then, um, I went across to Westfield in the early nineties and, uh, and was very, you know, really found a, a wonderful organization with massive opportunity for growth, personal growth, and really, really exciting, uh, projects, uh, and, you know, the opportunity to grow across the country, across into New Zealand, then internationally into the US and the UK. Um, in a in a, an asset class that had tremendous uh, growth opportunities, but really learned so many important uh, skills from the Lowys and from my colleagues there in terms of 
um, you know, the financial disciplines and the, you know, the, 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 the ability to sort of build large teams and, um, uh, and, and, you know, the detailed discipline required to run those sort of businesses. And yeah, I was fortunate to have a, a brilliant career there that extended over into ultimately, uh, running the UK business, um, at a time when, uh, there were some very, very exciting large-scale retail regeneration projects um, in one in East London, one in West London. The East London project um, actually ultimately became the gateway to the Olympic Games in 2012, um, and that was a very, very proud moment for all of us, uh, in, in, you know, as expat Australians doing something on the world stage. What was it like working with Frank Lowy? Mm. Uh, well... You know, as I said, I've been very fortunate to work with some iconic people, um, uh, you know, visionary people and people who have uh, incredible focus um, on, on, on objectives and incredibly creative. So learnt a lot around um, discipline and focus and priorities and, um, yeah, doing the important, not the urgent. Um, and uh, it was a very special time. And fast forward... Why did you choose to, at once Westfield was sold, uh, why, why did you choose to start up a investment management business? So, I mean, you know, I think when, when the business was sold, I was uh, enjoying it very much uh, and very keen to keep working and, and, again, also to think about how to continue investing my own money uh, and really very much a focus on stick to what you know, which is, you know, the old stick to the knitting um, and so uh, it was very much a priority to be in Australia, um, having been on a bit of a global um, pilgrimage for many, many years with my, fa with my family. And, um, you know, to, to, to you know, um, the idea really being to, to have a vehicle that was flexible enough to be able to um, be entrepreneurial, to be able to um, find opportunities that, had healthy risk-adjusted returns um, with, you know, the name of Assembly really was assembling of good partners, good shareholders, good team, good opportunities and, and use that as a vehicle to, um, you know, create a sustainable business and, uh, and achieve um, some, 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 some growth for shareholders ourselves and, um, and, and take that forward. And Michael, give us a bit of uh, a feel for the actual mandate and the nuts and bolts mm. of the, the the fund that you've got in terms of size um, and, and the mandate of it and, and how it's gone to date. How long is it that you've had it in place for? Yeah. So so we launched we launched the business in 2019, mm -hmm. uh, which is about, about four years ago, uh, and we made two really important decisions. One was that we would have a diversified approach, as in be multi-sector, um, and that we would have flexibility in the capital stack of where we sat. And those two decisions at the time were really important decisions and I think they've borne out to be, you know, really, really valuable for us and for our investors. Well, they're, they're pretty unusual too because most of your contemporaries are all into office or all into industrial um, and they don't have the flexibility of where they sit in terms of the capital stack. They're either all debt uh, or they're all equity investors. So if we look back, um, we've now been through uh, the COVID uh, blowtorch. Mm -hmm. We've been through the 400 basis points interest rate increase blowtorch. Um, and 
you know, in this period, we haven't bought one office building or one retail building. Um, if that was our mandate, we'd be pretty stuck in terms of what to do. Um, so, you know, the, the diversity, the diverse mandate across sectors and across the capital stack has allowed us during this prior four year period to be able to be in a position now where we have pretty well invested about half the money in residential and about a quarter in industrial logistics. Um, and from a capital perspective, it's been about one third in equity and about, uh, sorry, about one third of debt and about two thirds of equity. So, um, and, and all of that has enabled us to sort of be at the, uh, you know, pretty well at our target return range, um, also having been through quite a choppy time. And what is it that you like and what is it that's attracting you to that residential and industrial space? Uh, one of the things I suppose that, you know, so back to the Steve Jobs story is, you know, you learn lots of things from all the different uh, journeys, but I think probably the most valuable uh, lesson was really learning about the the underlying uh, importance of the occupiers uh, dynamics and business model. I mean, for, for, for example, in the retail world, we had a forensic knowledge and understanding of the P&L of a retailer and, 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 you know, if they were healthy, we were healthy. Um, in the case of, you know, residential and industrial, uh, we know that the tenancy fundamentals of these buildings, the occupier demand for these buildings uh, is driving so much of this, uh, you know, if we look at the office market nationally in, in Australia, we might be at mid-teens vacancy. Um, if we look at the residential uh, occupier market, we're sub one or two percent. If we look at the industrial occupier market, likewise. So I think it's very important to look at the fundamentals up and look at the fundamentals of the, the occupier. And, and, and I suppose that so much is what we see. We might be in a situation now where because of the movement in rates, there is some expansion in the cap rates, but when you're getting 10, 20 plus percent return on your income increases, um, that's providing quite a buffer to a world where if you go across to office and you have cap rate expansion, uh, but you have no rental growth or, you know, increased incentive packages and all of that going out the other way, then it's a very different proposition. Is immigration really driving that demand in the residential space? Well, there's a, there's a bunch of, I mean, it, there's a lot to unpick in the residential world um, where, we've, where we've, we've invested across the residential um, asset class in a number of different areas. We've in, invested in equity. We've invested in debt. We've invested in uh, medium density projects, um, you know, in a development sense. Um, and we've invested in 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 them in a in a in a, in a debt sense. So uh, I think an overall macro trend in the country is we've got this looming growth in immigration as a um, sort of a bounce back from what happened during COVID. We lost hundreds of thousands of migrants in terms of our, our immigration profile, and that's forecast to be coming back with a vengeance of I think the official numbers are like one and a half million over the next. Uh, five years. So um, if you've got a situation where we are now chronically undersupplied, so from a supply demand perspective, there are not enough homes being built in the country. Um, we've got another one and a half million people coming in over the next few years. Um, we've got a lot of issues in the supply chain where builders 
um, who have been caught on fixed price margins and have had delivery issues are now out of the game. Um, so you, you've really got a situation building where, um, you know, I don't know whether we call it the next boom, but um, you've certainly got lots of underlying pressures in demand, which is causing a lot of the national conversation around housing supply, which we see playing across the screens, the political discussions, et cetera. And on the industrial side where you have been active, the underlying demand for that is, is that a demand in logistics and, and this sort of e-commerce uh, delivery trend that we've seen, which, you know, people might argue, you know, the lowies and people associated got their timing perfect with their exit on that asset. Um, is it being driven by that or is there a resurgence in manufacturing? Or what are you seeing? I think there's, there's a lot of things going on in that space. Um, I mean, you've touched on a few of them. Um, but, the, you know, release of land for industrial, um, creation of industrial product um, is, is obviously in terms of that supply side. From the demand side, yeah, I mean, there was an issue in retail where fundamentally um, people uh, went and got their goods and services at a mall or in a department store or what have you and now they're being delivered online to, to a you know, certain proportion. Uh, and I think there's also a trend to, you know, the issue around, you know, probably a response from COVID around this whole reshoring or onshoring where people are concerned about the supply chain. And so, you know, retailers want product and goods and services available um, onshore. And you, you've alluded to there that you've had very little exposure uh, to office Um what, what would you need to see? And we were actually talking off air um, with our CEO, Paul Heath, here at Coder about um, some of our insights and the damages we've seen in the US and the comments from people um, we're, we're close with where they're saying, look, we can see people are going to make a lot of money out of this cycle and a lot of people have lost a lot of money, particularly in downtown, as they'd call it, or we'd call it CBD office, as, you know, in the US it's been, you know, some of those REITs are down sort of 80% type of thing. Um, what sort of conditions would you need to see before you re-entered or you entered the uh, the office market or even the retail um, property market? Yeah, so I guess how we've thought about investing over the last few years is to invest in sectors where we gen genuinely believe in the strong underlying fundamentals of those sectors. And we've seen that in residential and um, logistics. Um, and of course, we're not Robinson Crusoe there. I mean, that, that's been, sure. you know. Crowded uh, trade. Crowded trade. Um, and I think um, from the office and retail side of things, uh, you know, we, we run a screening process, which is, again, it's a bit of a red, green, yellow, sort of red, green, amber style dashboard um, and, and filters out a lot of, what we're looking at and where we should be and we update it regularly. And that's not to say there won't be a time when we look at um, office and retail again. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, you, I, I did listen to your podcast uh, with one of your former colleagues, a fascinating uh, podcast on the US office situation, quite frightening. Um, and, you know, and I do know the mall in San Francisco that was, that you know, actually where the keys were handed back there. But, um, you know, it doesn't seem to be as cr as chronic an issue in Australia. It doesn't seem to be as extreme an issue in terms of the, the metrics that you're referring to on, um, you know, on write-downs and vacancies and, you know, occupation of buildings and what have you. 
Um, but I think, yeah, I think that we're, I think everybody's waiting to see, you know, that spread between bid and ask on these buildings. You know, the the, the public markets have got a view of the value of these buildings. Um, valuers have got a, a certain view. Um, there are some trades that are beginning to occur, uh, but you know, it's a bit like. Um, you know, there was a revolution in retail, which was led by um, digit, digitization, uh, which made the the iPhone you know, sort of almost take over from buildings for for a while. And I think that's coming back a bit, but I think the revolution in office buildings um, is really the whole decarbonisation revolution, and so um, and that's you know these buildings now need to be um, you know need to need to be sustainable. They need to have all the right facilities. COVID. COVID has put a blowtorch onto that as well uh, in terms of changing the habits of people coming in into these buildings. So they need a lot of investment in them to make them attractive. They need a lot of investment from a sustainability and climate perspective, hence that decarbonisation. So in many ways, what happened in retail with the impact of digitisation is also happening in office from a decarbonisation perspective prompted by uh, or exacerbated by COVID. And we've got to basically find find those levels again. From our perspective in in in, in our business, uh, you know, we, we obviously we obviously want to make the right decisions. We we have team members that understand uh, commercial real estate really well, uh, and we're certainly in the conversation as these opportunities come up. Um, and you know, if it's an opportunistic uh, timing, we we'll certainly look at it and and like to be involved. And probably many ways to do that. And Michael, in terms of geography, are you just focused on Australia or can you invest in New Zealand? Um, and if so, what areas within that are you liking or, or have you invested in to date? Well, we really, we, you know, the, the focus of the business is Australia. Our mandate covers Australia and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. I think the, the real priority focus is the big cities on the eastern seaboard. Um, we have done some smaller things in Western Australia and in New Zealand, um, but I think that you know, the real focus and where the opportunities and where the growth of this country is coming forward will really be in those, um, in those big cities. And that's where we like to be. And, and are there anything that you're really guarded about at the moment and saying, I'm really wanting to, uh, I really want to avoid those, although I see other people rushing into that at the moment? Uh, I, th I think there. I think everyone is a little bit anxious at the moment, um, and I think there's a lot of people sitting on the sidelines. I think there's a lot of capital on the sidelines. Um, I think you know, from our perspective, we continue to look at opportunities. Um, we from 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 our first fund perspective, uh, we have been deliberately holding back um, a bunch of equity um, to 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 put to work in the right opportunities, and we're beginning to see quite a few interesting things from that perspective. I guess the beauty of our business is that we can we can look across, um, you know, basically all of those sectors, office, retail, residential, logistics, alts, hotels, um, storage, seniors. I mean, there's a whole range of things we can look at and there's always something to find um, when you've got that flexibility. And then when you throw into it the, the capital stack and when you look at the risk-adjusted returns that – um, we're getting out of debt that many or other people are getting out of debt as well. Um, you know, in many cases, it's better to play it that way than actually to to purchase the equity. I was going to say, uh, I, I think if I'm right, the stated objective of the strategy is circa 10 to 12% through the cycle type of thing. And, you know, there's plenty of 
senior secured first mortgages uh, around at the moment that you can get that will almost fulfill that. It, it sort of raises the question, well, why would you want to take on equity risk if you can get that out of private debt? How do you see that? Well, and so I guess the flexibility of the fund is we can do both. Yes. And I think it's also a matter for the times. I mean, in Fund One, it was launched pre-COVID, pre the 400 basis point rate rises, um, and yet the strategies enabled us to navigate our way through that. Um, for Fund Two, which we're currently um, in the process of, we have launched a second fund. Um, we want to be in a position where we have um, some firepower to deal with what we see coming down the track, and these things take some time to put in place. Um, and what we've taken a view with the second fund is to slightly raise our target in terms of return by having the view that there'll be more value add and more equity opportunities coming our way. Um, and I guess the thing with debt versus equity, I mean, it's always a risk management exercise. Uh, the, the return is, is quite comparable at the moment, but as rates start to come down um, and, and uh, you know, some of these more interesting opportun equity opportunities come along, you do have the opportunity to outperform. I mean, with debt, obviously, you want to get your dollar back and your and and your interest um, on the equity side. And obviously, we all heavily want to protect capital, um, but you do have the opportunity to outperform if you get set into the right assets. And this is probably a unique time um, from a twenty twenty three style vintage where those opportunities are you know looking more likely. And Michael, where does most of your deal origination or deal flow come from? So we, we have a dedicated investment team um, run by a colleague of mine, Tim Mura, who came from the uh, Invesco world, from the Corval world, and uh, he's built up a, a solid team which has the responsibility for, you know, identifying and executing on investments. But I guess, you know, there are also opportunities that flow through our, our relationships, you know, my relationships, our other directors, and even the awareness that your liquid is pretty valuable in these times as well. And who have been your investors to date? Well, we, we, have, a, we have a large range of generally high net worth um, investor families, ranging from, you know, the ultra high net worth down to, um, you know, a lower range. Uh, and I guess what's really unique about uh, what we do is that we, let's say we over-communicate, we're incredibly trans transparent with them. And I think we're also talking before about that whole idea that in the end, um, you know, we can provide the economy of scale by what we're doing to, for them to really outsource their their real estate piece. You know, many of them are actually making deal-by-deal deal decisions and going into maybe shorter-term syndicates or shorter-term loans and then having to roll them and, you know, think about where to next. Whereas from our, from our perspective, we're looking at our cash flow and we're looking at it way out in terms of when money's coming back and what it's going to go into. And we've got a constant you know, sourcing and origination exercise going on. I mean, we've deployed one to $200 million a year in terms of investments over, uh, over the past few years. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we're looking at growing that, we're looking at larger ticket sizes, but the job to actually do that for an individual uh, family or an individual investor is, qu is quite, quite challenging. They might do it for a number of years, uh, but then maybe get a little bit fatigued as well. Michael, I'm interested in what you've learned over the last four years. You know, my summation, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is that you've had a wonderful career in property um, and, and via Westfield and great knowledge of um, retail particularly, um, and then entered the investment management 
business four years ago. Mm. What have you changed for fund two that you didn't have for fund one? And is another way of me asking, you know, knowing what you know now, what, what would have you done differently back then? Uh, yeah, no, it's a really good question. Um, so I guess what we've, what I probably, hopefully I've got across the message to you that um, we really liked the product that we created and we're really not planning to deviate from that. Having the flexibility across the sectors, across the, the, the financial um, capital stack has been very valuable. Um, we can't see the future. We don't know where we are, but we know that we've got a framework that allows us to deal with that. So we're not looking to change that. Um, I think that one of the things that we saw was that we, um, we should recognise that in a, um, in a closed fund uh, where you have a progressive call structure, um, that, you know, charging a full fee on committed capital, um, I think was okay for the first fund. For the second fund, we're looking at a significant uh, discount on that, sort of almost half. So that, that's quite a big change in that for, for the undrawn amount till we've actually invested um, there's a significant change there. Um, I think the other thing that I mentioned was that we um, are skewing more to um, some high returning style assets, more equity focus, certainly for the times we believe that's where the opportunities will be. Of course, we've, we've improved a lot of our processes and onboarding for investors and simplified a lot of that. Um, and, and just yeah, generally really looked at the, the IP and the process to improve the experience. But I think broadly, broadly the, the strategy um, is robust um, and, uh, and, and I suppose they're, they're the, really the key changes. But what actually makes it up in terms of um, if, I, if I look back now and say, would I have believed four years ago that half fund one would be in residential um, and a quarter would be in industrial, we would have no office buildings and no shopping centres, um, I would have been very surprised. So. I can't sit here today and tell you what will fund two be in, in four years' time, um, but I'm pretty confident that the opportunities will be there um, and the structure will enable it to occur. Michael, we're always very interested in alignment of interest of managers and that they have skin in the game. And I think uh, off air, we were just having a, a quick chat and you, know, you mentioned that one of the reasons you formed and entered this business was you're interested in how, how, how to manage your own money. Um, what sort of alignment of interest do you have with the performance of this fund? So, so, so for, from the manager's perspective in the funds, um, in fund two, there will never, never be less than 10% uh, alignment. Um, and, and from my own perspective, look, it's, it's a meaningful amount. Um, I think, you know, what I'm quite excited about is being able to leverage, uh, you know, my resources and be able to undertake a much broader range, more diversification, more, let's say, uh, interesting and compelling opportunities with a broader range of investors. Um, and, you know, I think in terms of the ticket size and the things that you can undertake um, and bring into play the skills that, that I've learned over, you know, uh, over the four decades, um, there's a very strong alignment from the team perspective uh, in the business and uh, uh, the team is, you know, obviously very performance oriented as well. Um, so I think the, the alignment is very strong. Michael, thank you very much. It's been wonderful learning from you. Congratulations on the career today. Congratulations on Assembly and the, the great achievement over the last four years and the performance today and, and good luck 
with the capital raising that you're in at the moment. Thank you very much for joining us at Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.